Welcome to Fertility Now. I would like to re-welcome Dr. Joshua Hurwitz. Remember, he's a double board certified physician in OBGYN and REI. He is a partner at Reproductive Medicine Associates of Connecticut, and we practice together among our other partner doctors and all of our doctors. So this is part two of our conversation. The last episode, we kind of talked about your initial visit with your REI, what it looks like, and we talked about different tests that you can do and complete really to help us learn about your reproductive system and kind of make plans for you to make you successful. So Josh, I want to throw out the idea of being collaborative with our patients after we do our testing. You know, you've done testing. Now you got to come up with a plan. What does that strike in your mind? Well, thanks for having me back today, Spencer. This was fantastic. Uh, We had so much fun the first time you get us again. Um, I'm so happy. Thank you so much for taking the time. I I love getting the word out. I love getting the message out for, for everybody out there, just like you do. Now, your question about being collaborative with with patients, I think is really important because everybody comes into this with their own um, feelings of what they're willing to do, what they're not willing to do. They come in with their own fears and anxieties. Now, it's our job to address what they are and, and teach them how some of the options might not be as bad as they thought, but everybody comes in with their own hearts and their own minds. So it's really important for us not to dictate to patients what they're going to do, but to talk to them about the options, see what their data points to, say, hey, look, this is where you are based on that full and thorough fertility checkup, which we, which we talked about at our first episode together. And then this is where the data points us. Let's talk about it. Right. Kind of let's put it together and let's make some decisions moving forward that we're both happy with, but can really make you become successful. So a lot of our patients are going to have what we call unexplained infertility. So if I ask you for your practice, how do you kind of describe your patient who's unexplained? So I, I have to tell you, tell me if you agree, Spence, I, I think that unexplained or it, so here's a joke I use. So there's something about 15% of our patients, we don't find a single discrete reason why they're, they're not conceiving, meaning everything looks great on the fertility checkup, right? That we do this full and exhaustive and thorough fertility checkup. No one will look at you more thoroughly than we will. And then we don't have an answer. Correct. It's super, super emotionally unsatisfying. Now there's a fancy term for that and it's called idiopathic subfertility. So idiopathic is a fancy word for unexplained or that your doctor's an idiot. Ha ha ha. That's the the doc, the dad joke of medicine that I always like to get out. Right. So it's very frustrating place for both us and for you. It's emotionally unsatisfying for you. It's very um, professionally unsatisfying for us, but it does not mean that there isn't something wrong. It just means we don't have it yet. It probably means it's something so subtle that it's below the level of detection of our test, or, or maybe it is, um, Science doesn't have an answer for it yet, but right. what we do know about uh, about unexplained, and this is how I explain it to patients, and I think it relaxes them, is that, listen, guys, we've done all the testing. You have ev- all the pieces of the puzzle you need. I promise you, we've looked at you. You have all the pieces of the puzzle. For some reason, you need our help to help you put this puzzle, the pieces together, but you're going to be okay because you have all those puzzle pieces. Right. You know, I think I have two comments on that. I agree with you. You know, s- Sometimes our patients want to find something wrong, but you know, sometimes I kind of don't want them to. The one thing that is really difficult is when we have lower ovarian reserve, and that's something that is so important. So if your ovarian reserve is good, remember the FSH, the AMH, your age and your follicle count, that is so important. One of the other subtle things about unexplained, like Dr. Hurwitz said, was is we've done all your tests and everything's fine. One of the subtle things is, is you know, we can't see inside your pelvis. So we can't see if there's a good relationship between your 
ovary and the end of the tube where you get egg pickup. So remember, the reproductive system, like I've talked about in the past, is really delicate. You need the egg and the ovary and the end of the tube to be really close to each other for egg pickup. So sometimes people are unexplained, but they really have something going on in their pelvis that we can't see because we're not looking inside and they're not getting egg pickup. Hey, Spence, can I ask you a question? Yeah. In, in the old days, right, um, we used to do laparoscopies to look around inside the pelvis. And that has gone by the wayside because treatments have gotten less invasive and, more, and, and, and higher percentage working, right? They've become more effective. How, how do you feel about not looking inside the pelvis sometimes? I, I think you're right. I think where we're going is, and what we're, Dr. Hertz and myself are going to talk to you about is, you know, a lot of people don't want to be operated on. They don't want us to look inside. And the reason why because in vitro is here, pretty much. So at the end of the day, we do, and we'll talk about the treatments for unexplained. But you know what? If if we do, let's say, superovulation, which we're going to talk about for two, three, four months, and it doesn't work, you know what? I'd rather just do IVF and not operate on someone or look inside to see if there's a good relationship between the end of the ovary, at the end of the tube and the ovary, because IVF is really going to be the treatment. That, you know, that, that I, I feel the same way. And the way I put it is, hey, look, there might be something in there, some kind of, you know, adhesions we can't see through through HSGs or saline sanos. There might be some endometriosis, which might be an, the explanation for your, for your fertility challenges. But here's the thing. Our treatments, so surgery to, di- to scratch a diagnostic itch would be maximally invasive, but minimally beneficial. Correct. Whereas our fertility treatments going up the ramp of everything we have to offer up to and including IVF. Um, are minimally invasive, but maximally beneficial. They're the opposite. So why would you want major surgery just to scratch a diagnostic itch? I don't, I don't think that makes sense to me. Right. And basically at this point in our careers, we would do not have our patients do laparoscopy. We would kind of jump right into it. So explain to us, what are you telling your patients about superovulation and how it can help them? So that's a great place to start, Spence. I, I usually think about my, uh, my fertility treatments um, as sort of a low level, medium level, and high levels of treatment. That's how I that's how I organize them. A very good place to start at the low level are some oral medications. There's a, a very traditional one called Clomid. It's been around forever. Like even women older than my mom's age have used Clomid to get pregnant. And then there's a newer one called Letrozole, otherwise called Femara, F-E-M-A-R-A. And they're orals and they're not, they're pretty chill, no real side effects. Easy. Yep. They do two things. So number one is if you're not ovulating properly, they will tighten up your ovulation, kind of like winding a fancy watch. The second thing they will do, if you do have regular cycles and you're ovulating one egg per month, it will increase that. It will trick your body into bring up a couple extra eggs per month. So the idea is if one egg's not working, maybe two or three will, more targets for the sperm. That's how I always explain it. Right. Now, here's the thing though. I don't want to just throw the medicines at someone because not every medicine or every dose works for every patient, Right. So we want to individualize it to you. It's like personalized medicine. And so what we can do is we do a quick ultrasound in the middle of your cycle. It takes like five minutes. And I can tell you if it's working. So I don't want to waste your time if it's not. I can tell you how many eggs are there, right? Because you want an extra, you know, you want two or three eggs, but you don't want a hockey team all at once, right? Right. And we can pick the most fertile day to trigger your ovulation. So we program in your body the exact day that those eggs are coming through and you're not peeing on a stick or checking an app. It's literally a spreadsheet for us when those eggs are coming through. Right, right. And so the interesting thing is, remember everyone, when you're cycling on your own, you're going to release one egg. And when you're doing superovulation, like Josh talked about, Famar or Clomid, we're going to not have you release one, but two. That's what we want because we want a higher chance of you to be able to pick up an egg in your tube. And then, like he said, we trigger ovulation. The next day, we'll put sperm 
all the way through the cervix into the uterus to get the sperm closer to the tube to potentially swim towards the eggs that have been picked up. Spence, can I ask you a question? Go for it. How do you feel? Like, do you start off with superovulation and timed intercourse, or do you prefer an insemination or an IUI up front? How do you, how do you usually do it? So for our patients with who are unexplained, I always tell them that the best chance of pregnancy is usually with superovulation, get not one egg like they're doing on their own, but two to release and putting sperm real close. The data is very clear that in our patients who are unexplained, doing superovulation and IUI gives them better pregnancy rates than doing either superovulation alone or IUI alone. So I have patients do both. Now, jump into talking about our patients who are irregular. Sure. Let me just, I just want to tell you how I, how I talk to yeah. patients about the IUI issue, because I think that comes up a lot. Yes. And the, the, the idea for me is, you know, my, look, I love, I love my patients. I like hanging out with them, but they don't want to be here forever. They just want to get pregnant and get out of here and graduate from us. Right. So if you ask me what to do, I'm always going to tell you to do the more efficient thing. Right. So like, like Spencer said, superovulation, like, you know, more targets, perfect timing and better sperm delivery is better than just more targets and perfect timing alone. So if you ask me what to do, I always like IUIs up front because it also gives us data on the male side. Another important part of treatments is that we keep a lot of data. We have spreadsheets and data, and I want them not on the female side. I also want to know what the numbers right. are on the male side. Right. Are there times when you decide, you know, I don't really want you to do superovulation and IOI is your first option. You know, I want you to do IVF. And that's kind of a newer trend in our field, like you said, being really proactive. Are there times when you say, listen, you've done your test, I don't see anything wrong, but I kind of want you to go to IVF straight out. Because remember, IVF gives us really high pregnancy rates. And tons of data. Like a lot of times unexplained is revealed during IVF. We get Absolutely. Dozens and, dozens and dozens of data point on the male, on the egg, the sperm, the embryo. So, you know, I, like when I said earlier about low, medium, high, right? So low level would be oral meds. Medium level would be injectable meds called gonadotropins. But I do want to stress that they are exact copies of your own natural hormones. They're not some crazy chemical, which will increase from a couple extra eggs to maybe three, four, same monitoring, same triggering, same insemination. Now I, I set it up with my patients from the very beginning. Hey, we're going to do this full and thorough fertility checkup. If everything looks good, we'll start low, we'll go to medium. But and then ramp up as needed. But I always say that all roads eventually lead to IVF if the lower and medium level treatments don't right. get someone pregnant because it is the best treatment option. It's amazing. It's like the biggest cannon we can shoot at any issue. Right. Now, to answer your question directly, and you know I'm a super long-winded guy. That's why it took me that that much to get to answer your question. Is there are some deal breakers that that you and I both see on a daily basis that bring couples or a woman right to IVF? And here's how I think about them. And you, you tell me what you think, Spence. But if the tubes are blocked at the outset on the HSG, it does not make sense anymore to try and repair them surgically. It never works. And IVF was invented to bypass blocked fallopian tubes. Agreed. Number two, if there's a severe male factor. So IUIs are good for mild male factor if the sperm you know, motility count, morphology are low. But for severe male factor, you need IVF to be able to inject the sperm directly into the egg. And that's how men, even who, God forbid, had chemotherapy and have super, super low counts, can still have biological children. Right. Now, the third one, and this is something you and I, we really talk about, not every day, but like every minute of every day, is if there's a weakness in the ovarian reserve, the term is diminished ovarian reserve. Now, look, we, Spencer and I, we never treat, we don't, we don't look at patients as labels. We don't look at them as diagnoses. We look at them as people. 
but the term we use in the field is diminished ovarian reserve. So don't get scared about that term. We still look at you as people. Um, and be very careful on the internet searching for that. It's a very deep rabbit hole when you talk about diminished ovarian reserve. Right, right. But if the ovaries are weakening, IVF combats the biological clock the best. Right. The other couple, I'm sorry, Spence, let me just, let me just finish this and I know I'm hogging it. I'm sorry. Um, the other things that I think about, right, would be is if someone's closing in on 40 or above, I mean, all of the textbooks on both mine and Spencer's shelves say go right to IVF. doesn't mean you have to, and it doesn't mean that's for everybody, but we do know that IVF after 40 is really the premier treatment option. And then there's one other little deal breaker that doesn't come up often. It's not rare, but it's not common, is if both members of the couple have the same genetic mutation that we found on the genetic carrier screening up front, or they have a known dominant condition on just one member of the couple. So under those circumstances, you can go right to IVF and you can investigate the embryos to see which ones carry it and which ones don't, and then only transfer ones that don't. So in my mind, Spence, if you talk about who goes right to IVF, those are the deal breakers for me. How do you think about it? So my deal breakers, I agree with everything you said, obviously, and completely. One subtle thing is, is if a couple has been trying for a long time, many, many, many years, or they've had prior surgeries, you know, I always wonder, are they getting good egg pickup? Is the end of the tube nice and close to the ovary to get egg pickup? And if we do super ovulation and we make you make not one follicle or one egg release, but two or three, it's really not going to help you if things are not set up well in, in your pelvis. So a lot of times we'll do IVF in that situation. Real can quickly. I you, can I ask you a question? Yeah. What do you think about patients who are sort of starting their family building late and they come to us and maybe they don't need IVF necessarily for their first child, but for subsequent family building, how would IVF help them? So what we're seeing a lot and one of the big, big threads in our field is actually to go straight to IVF when you're, you know, in your thirties. And you know why? Patients want to bank embryos. And what's so popular, and we're going to get there in a couple minutes, is doing IVF testing embryos and saying, okay, of the embryos I have, these are genetically 46 and really healthy. And guess what? They're all frozen now. And so that I have a bunch frozen now. I can thaw one, put it in, start my family building. And when I come back when I'm 41, 42, 43, it's not an issue because I have these younger embryos and I can thaw one and put it in. And my chance of pregnancy is based upon when I was younger. So your point that we we both kind of alluded to is very important. And we don't want our listeners to, to forget about this. People are being proactive. And with the advent of IVF and embryo testing, people are, you're right, Josh, freezing embryos now for later. Right. The cool part in, in this way I think about it is that, you know, if we're having trouble now, just whatever your age is now, it's only going to be harder later when you come back in two or three years after having your baby. Because we know you're going to be successful. It's what we do here all day long. You're going right. to be fine worry about it, but it will be that much harder in two or three years when you come back to have another baby. Right. And so if you create embryos now, your future pregnancy rates, miscarriage risk, Down syndrome risk, they're all based on the age of the egg now when you make the embryo and freeze it, not your age in the future when you go to use it. And I think that's a really important message to get out to everybody. Really, really important because a lot of our patients are waiting to family build a little bit later. Before we leave superovulation, what we want to comment on is that, you know, our goal is to have one baby at a time, one healthy pregnancy. And when you superovulate, think about it, you're not releasing one egg, but two or three, there is a chance of a multiple pregnancy. And that's why we do that ultrasound mid-cycle to make sure not too many follicles have increased. So just so our listeners know, we're very careful about 
multiple pregnancy. And if, if we get into a situation mid-cycle and there's too many follicles, i.e. too many eggs will be released, we can always stop that cycle. Spence, would you agree that one of the biggest themes in, in reproductive medicine in the last 20 years has been to single pregnancy for everybody? Yeah, I do absolutely agree. What's really popular in our field is just one pregnancy at a time. So safe, so healthy. And you know, when we get into multiple pregnancy, we have a higher chance of early delivery, medical complications of pregnancy, hypertension, preeclampsia, cesarean section. So I agree. Where we are at in our practice and what we've been doing for years is, is moving towards single embryo transfer. And the reason why is because we're so good really at what we do and with and we have incredible IVF pregnancy rates to do yeah, one number. You're so good with one that you don't need to take the risk of two. And I would say that good practices across the country and really across the world really should be doing a single embryo transfer for everybody and only two in the most dire circumstances that would be unusual. Absolutely. Before we jump into IVF, because we're going to, I'd like you to comment quickly about your patients who are irregular and need Femara to make them really be able to time things better and make them ovulate. Right. So um, we all remember, again, from seventh grade health class that the ovulation causes the period, not the, not the other way around. So the bleeding doesn't cause the ovulation. The ovulation causes the period. So if someone's having irregular cycles, doesn't know when her periods are going to be, or they're greater than 35 days in length or less than 25 days in length, then it probably means that there's an ovulation problem. I think one of the most, that means that the egg is not coming out to play with the sperm. Right Now, what part of our workup that we talked about in our original episode together, the first episode we did together is finding out why. There's a lot of different reasons why women don't ovulate, thyroid, prolactin, PCOS, hypothalamic amenorrhea, million different reasons why. We're not going to get into that today, but at the end result is if the egg is not coming out to play with the sperm at a regular predictable pattern, then it'll be very difficult to get pregnant because how do you time a random event? Correct. So then that's where the medications come in. So you can either use low-level oral medications like clomid or letrozole, or you could use, sometimes we need injectable gonadotropins, the stronger medicines to get people to ovulate. Now, what they do is they sort of reset the, the messages that the brain is sending to the ovaries to get you to ovulate. That's what these, that's what these medications do. And so under ultrasound guidance, because we don't want to do this blindly, we would watch you every several days that you're on the medications. We can see if it's working. Now, remember, sometimes you get a couple extra eggs at the same time. We want to make sure that there's not a hockey team going on all at once and then pick the perfect day to trigger your ovulation. And I find ovulation induction, Spence, tell me if you feel the same way. I find it very satisfying because the one ingredient that's missing in those couples is we have to time when they're doing their, when they're having sex or when we're doing the IUI. And it's very gratifying to kind of wind that watch of ovulation and get things back to their normal cyclicity that they should be. And then patients will do great. Right. You know, what I say almost is when you're irregular, it's hard for you to time things. But when we utilize a medicine like Femar or Clomid, it's as if you were trying on your own with your partner. And so the pregnancy rates are really good with patients who are irregular because they really have what's called ovulation dysfunction. And so when we can, like you said, when we can make them regular and they time intercourse or do IUI, their chance of pregnancy is really good, often better than if they were unexplained. So very satisfying. One of the things Dr. Hurwitz said was, is in your initial evaluation, we're going to look into finding out, well, why are you irregular? If there's something that's correctable, like he said, thyroid. Sometimes people's thyroid is working too fast or too slow. And if we fix their thyroid, their cycles, cycles basically can become regular. And guess what? You could try on your own. So that's all part of what we would do in your evaluation. So, you know, next on our list, 
and our thought process is IVF. Absolutely an amazing technology. Won the Nobel Prize in 2010. It's, it's, notice I can't even say how amazing it is. I'm sitting here just in wonderment. So if I said to you, Josh, you know, how do you describe IVF to your patients? It's a big, heavy haul. What do you say? Well, I think patients come in with that feeling that it's uh, um, an anxiety producing thing that's going to make them feel really gross. I think people, I think people feel that. Luckily, you know, with modern, modern IVF protocols, I think it's pretty chill. Um, everybody thinks it takes months and months and months. It doesn't, it takes a couple of weeks. So basically in a nutshell, and this is the top level and then Spencer will dig in, right? Is that a woman ovulates one egg per month. That's not going to cut it in IVF, right? We need multiple eggs. IVF is a numbers game. And the more eggs you give us, the better off you're going to be. So we give you medications. These are injectables, little tiny whisper thin needles. You don't even feel them. And remember, like I said before, these medications are exact copies of the same hormones your own body makes. They are not a crazy chemical. I really want you to hear that they're natural medicines in that regard, but you're going to be on one to two shots per day for on average 10 to 12 days. During those 10 to 12 days, we monitor you with ultrasounds and blood work every second or third day to find your most fertile and mature day to trigger your ovulation, which we do at a specific day and time that is unique to you and your cycle. It is not a generic day for everybody. It's personalized medicine for you. That sets in motion a cascade of events inside each and every follicle and egg that gets them ready for the egg retrieval 36 hours later. Right. Egg retrieval is a very short, very minor surgical procedure. We do it in our office. You don't have to go to the hospital. You're sedated through a little IV in your arm, no ventilators, no paralysis. It's not general anesthesia. And, and I mean, Spence, tell me if you agree. All of our patients tell us they love this stuff, right? The anesthesia. The very easy. Very easy. They say they get a full night's sleep in 20 minutes. That's the thing I hear the most, right? <laughs> And so the eggs come out of the body through the vagina. There is no signs on your abdomen that you had any surgical procedure whatsoever, not even a Band-Aid, literally. So it takes under half an hour, about 45 minutes after you wake up, you just get up, walk out, go home. The way I tell my patients to, to recover from an IVF cycle, Spence, tell me if you say the same thing, go home, watch some Netflix, take a nap on the couch, you'll feel fine. Absolutely. So when they go home, they'll have a little cramping, a little spotting. Right. And then the next day you can go back to work. The yeah. vast majority of patients go back to work the next day. Yeah. So IVF basically means one to two shots per day, little tiny needles that are, there's no drama. It's not a big deal. A couple of ultrasounds during that time to find your most fertile, mature day to trigger. 36 hours later, you have an egg retrieval, which is a super chill, easy procedure that you do in the office. Another, another phrase I use, Spence, is uh, in, by in by breakfast, home by brunch, right? Yeah. It's really quick. It's not a big deal. It's so quick. we get the eggs from the female partner, right? And then we obviously need sperm. From the from the either a donor sperm in a non-partnered woman or a partner sperm in someone who has a, a partner in their life. Right. So basically, when we think about it, we're thinking about stimulating the ovaries nine to twelve days, real easy. Watching ultrasounds, and we ultrasound early in the morning during those nine to twelve days. Oh, three to four to five times to watch those follicles grow, and then we set you up for your egg retrieval. IV sedation only, real simple, 10, 15 minutes, and you should be home an hour and a half later, and then. Like you said, we're going to have partner sperm, donor sperm. We're going to put them together on that day and we're going to grow those embryos and we want to make embryos for a potential embryo transfer. And, and, you know, tell us a little bit about calling your patients with egg numbers. You know, in general, the world average of eggs retrieved on an IVF cycle could be 11 to 12. So we get out those eggs and on that day, again, we're putting egg and sperm together. Explain to our audience little bit about fertilization, day three, embryos and blastocysts and into embryo transfer. 
Wow, that's a whole big conversation. It's, sure, it's a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the more eggs, the better. As as Spencer said, about 11, 12 eggs on the day of the retrieval is the average. Now, here's the thing. Not every egg is going to make it, right? We know that. And that's why the more, the better. So I would normally say that after about 12 eggs average, about nine or 10 are mature, seven or eight fertilized normally, uh, six will make it to the interim stage of day three, which is an early embryo stage. And then the biggest most important piece of the embryo development is getting from the early stage of the embryo to the final mature stage of an embryo called a blastocyst. Exactly. We, we nickname them blasts. And that's the, whole, that's the whole name of the game. So what I basically say is that the strong ones will make it. They will self-select themselves to turn into blastocysts at the end, kind of like, you know, I don't know, your good soldiers reporting for duty, so to speak. I, I don't know, something like that. And the weak ones will poop out. They will die off. And so you're sifting the good from the bad by making the reproductively competent ones prove themselves and self-select themselves by getting to the blastocyst stage. Now, what you would ask me about, um, Dr. Richland, was, hey, what kind of communication can a patient expect during this time? And I think that's really important. This has to be a very transparent process. We're in this together. It's not just a black box or a curtain that you can't see behind. So basically, on the day of the retrieval, you will know how many eggs you have before you leave the office. Yes. Overnight, they fertilize with the sperm. Either we trust them to get in on their own some, through something called conventional insemination, or we help the sperm get in through a process called ICSI. But overnight, they incubate with the sperm. And the next day, we will know of all the eggs you gave us, how many were mature, and how many fertilize normally with the sperm. And we'll call you the next day for sure. All right. Now, from there, the ones that make that important checkpoint meaning fertilized and mature, they still have a lot of work to do. So even the ones that, that show themselves to make this day one checkpoint, they have to grow, divide, develop. So one cell is to split into two, two into four, four into eight. You guys get what I mean. And there is attrition and drop-off every step of the way. So in our practice, I don't know how other practices do it. Um, the doctors in our practice, so Spencer and I spend a lot of time every day, Call the next update will be day three when the fertilized eggs make their first step towards early embryos on day three. And we'll call you, hey, how many made it here? Now, like I alluded to before, the biggest deal we'll be getting from that early embryo stage on day three to the final one called the blastocyst. Now, blastocysts have different growth rates and some are ready on day five, some day six, some even on day seven in good labs like ours. And we will call you on day seven for a cumulative breakdown of how many embryos made it for either use, freezing, or testing, which Dr. Richland's going to bring up in a second. Yeah. And so I think it's very important to have patients know, know what their expectations are ahead of time, counsel them what, how many numbers to expect, but also to give them real-time data through the, through the process, right? Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest things that gets our patients caught off guard is really how many embryos from day three make embryos that are competent to make blastocysts. And that's there's really a big drop-off. Remember, blastocysts basically has three things. It has an inner cell mass, which is the fetal component. It has a water cavity, and it has outer cells, which make the placenta. So from day three to day five, we definitely have a loss. And, you know, we tell our patients up front, you know, you're going to start with a certain amount of eggs. And like you said, the reproductively competent embryos, you may have two to three to four to five embryos as blastocyst, or you know what, it can even happen that you have none. So we really have to set you up uh, and, and talk to you about all that. Once we have those embryos, there's two ways to do this. One is basically a fresh embryo transfer, and we have you come in for 
and then we're going to transfer on day five, and we're going to have you come with a full bladder, and we're going to identify you. There's very serious identification processes in centers to make sure that we're transferring the correct embryo and you are who you are. And walk us through how you feel the embryo transfer day goes, Josh. So that's the big event, right? Yeah, that's very, very important. That's the big deal. I would say that's the most sensitive and delicate part of the whole cycle. Would you agree? Yeah, you know, I'm gonna, I want to... I'm going to make an interesting diversion that you and I both believe in. You know, our centers, wherever you're going, are really set up for you to succeed. And everyone you meet, your doctors, your your nurses, your financial people, your front desk people, everyone is really rooting for you. And they really want you to succeed, the embryologists. But like you said, for you and I, everyone helps us get to the point of that embryo transfer. Right. That's the very forward-facing part of all of this, right? That's where the rubber hits the road. Absolutely. And the bottom line is you're going to come with a full bladder. You know, we're putting in one healthy embryo at a time, and we're freezing excess embryos. And basically, think about this. Why is IVF so amazing? Because we're basically putting an embryo through the cervix right into the uterine cavity to have that embryo go up against the wall and make a pregnancy. You don't need ovulation. You don't need egg pickup. It's really efficient. And pregnancy rates really depend upon age. You feel the same way? Well, I think they depend on the center you go to. So I think it's important to find a really good center. Um, believe it or not, there are still kind of mom and pop places or places that aren't maybe in the doing the most modern protocols or having the most modern labs. So I do think it's important to, to shop around and find a place that you know is tip top, right? And then I agree, age is one of the biggest indicators for what we do. Um, but one thing that's helped with the age issue, Spence, would you agree that chromosome testing of embryos is a kind of a good life hack to kind of get around that? So what you're really alluding to is incredible PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing. And that's where we're going to go next. The bottom line, a lot of you are hearing out there the following, you know, before you do an embryo transfer in me, I want to know if that embryo is good. What does an embryo being good mean? Well, basically, the embryo has to have 46 chromosomes, 23 from the egg, 23 from the sperm, 46. Now, when we do regular IVF and we're putting in embryos, all we look at is the shape of the embryo. Is it a nice embryo? Is it pretty? Does it have good characteristics before we put it in? But like you're alluding to and where we're going next is, as you know, I have a certain amount of embryos. Which embryo is genetically 46 chromosomes. And this is a game changer. Before we get into that, Spence, can I, can I ask you, um, l- l- can we talk about grading of embryos just for one quick sec? But I don't, get, I don't wanna get into it in the way you think. What, what I, the way I feel about, my patients know that I do not get judgy about grades. Absolutely. And I'll tell you why. So yes, the embryologists give grading systems. There is a standardized grading system that all good IVF centers use um, that's, um, that describes an embryo. But here's the thing. We know in our center and all other centers as well, that there's a floor of grading above which we do really well and can work with and below which we cannot. And as long as an embryo meets that baseline criteria, the floor is not terrible. You don't have to get bummed out about a grade because we know we do very well with grades of embryos that we, we know we can work with. And so I don't get judgy about grades too much. I know a lot of other centers do and some patients do after reading on the internet, but I know what our pregnancy rates are, and I know that the spread between the highest grade and the lowest grade is really not as severe as people think. And every embryo that is is workable that is is in that 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 meets our criteria deserves a chance. Right. Basically, I, you know, I agree. If an embryo makes, you know, an embryo a blastocyst, 
looking at it does not tell you about its total potential. So if, if an embryo makes criteria, we will use it. So when we get to embryo testing, like I talked about on day Let's five, do seven, Let's do it now. Do it now. we basically take six cells from the placenta, six little outer cells. We're not touching the fetal component. It does not hurt the embryo. So we take six cells from the embryo and we freeze all the embryos that we've tested. Amazing. And then nine days later, we're going to find out which embryos we biopsied were 46 chromosomes. And some of the embryos are not going to be 46 chromosomes. They're going to have one too many or one too little. And if we had put those embryos in, guess what? They would have not worked or we would have had a loss. So embryo testing is, is incredible. How are you feeling about your patients who are doing embryo testing? So I think PGT, pre-implantation testing, is a game changer. I think what's really important for patients to hear is that it's very minimally invasive to an embryo. We're taking, like you said, three to six cells from the outside skin of the embryo that's going to become the placental cells, nothing to do with the embryo itself. And the little tiny bit of DNA in there can give us really good insight into whether the chromosomes are aligned or misaligned. But Spence, one, one thing I like to tell patients, right, is that if you do it or not, it's up to you. I don't, I don't want patients to feel sort of emotionally blackmailed that if they don't do it, that they're playing Russian roulette with like Down syndrome or something. I, I think that it's more like, hey, if it's chromosomally abnormal, it will um, preferentially not implant. It'll be a negative pregnancy test. And if it does implant, the vast, vast, vast majority of those will be first trimester losses, like you said, right? Only very, very rarely, a small percentage of those embryos are going to escape the first trimester. But that's a problem, right? Because that could be a second or third trimester loss, God forbid, which is catastrophic, or God forbid, a sick baby. But I don't want people to think that they have a gun to their heads. If they don't do it, they're doing something wrong. Absolutely. But I do think there's some age stratification involved. What, what do you think about that, Spence? So I agree. So, you know, testing embryos tells us, again, if it's 46 chromosomes and also the gender. And really that begs the question is, is, you know, who are we testing? You know, in general, the American society wants us to test embryos in our patients 38 and above. But remember, everyone is individual. And sometimes our, sometimes our patients have had multiple pregnancy losses, and they kind of want to know what embryos to put in. Are those embryos 46 or not? I've had a bunch of losses. Please put in a good one. And there's other patients, what we alluded to earlier, who want to test embryos and have them frozen now and potentially use them later. So embryo testing is incredible. It's very individualized. Remember, before we move on, that if you are a couple who are carriers of a medical condition, both of you carry the same condition. At the same time that we tell you the embryo is 46 chromosomes and the gender, we can tell you which of the embryos you tested were carriers of that medical condition or were affected or, or were unaffected, PGT-M. So things like cystic fibrosis, fragile X, SMA, Tay-Sachs, sickle cell, thalassemia, like any sort of known genetic condition we can test for in an embryo. Would you agree? Absolutely. And remember, when we put in an embryo from a PGT cycle that's genetically normal, the pregnancy rates are really high. So what we do is we get you ready for an embryo transfer. So we have your embryos frozen. And guess what? They don't mind being frozen. They can be frozen for years. Embryos don't degrade as they're frozen because they're vitrified. It's an amazing technology. And basically what we do is, is we get your uterus ready. It can take up to you know three weeks, get that lining receptive, and we'll thaw an embryo. And basically, the chance that one of your embryos survive the, survives the thaw is really, really high. And then we do a single embryo transfer, and we get really good pregnancy rates. Anything you want to comment on that? 
Just the one, the one thing I just want to go back to is who sh- when we're talking about who should do PGT or not, just one thing just to make very clear, the reason why we do it the older you are is that the chances of having chromosomal misalignment increases with age. So I just want to make sure that message gets out, is that the older you are, the more you should do PGT. The younger you are, the less you need to do PGT. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but the less you need to do it. And a big bright line in the sand for me and due to American side reproductive medicine and our own internal data is about 38 years old. At that point, I do feel it's really important to do PGT. Now, under 35, tell me what you do. I kind of mention it in case somebody's interested in it, but I don't, I don't bring it up too much. Um, and then 35 to 38 is a little bit of a gray zone that I think is more personalized. How do you think about it? I agree with you 100%. I think it's got to be discussed. It's out there. And patients of all ages can do it. We, we support them and we just walk through, you know, the outcomes. Yeah. You know, as we move away from IVF, there's certain patients who actually don't do well with their own eggs. Um, their eggs don't behave. They do IVF. They don't make those embryos. They do IVF. They test embryos and none of them are normal. Very frustrating, obvious, but guess what? We have options for them. And a lot of times we end up using donor eggs. And what's so cool about using donor eggs is, is we can get eggs from someone in their 20s, put sperm with them, create embryos, and put them back into your uterus. And guess what? Your chance of pregnancy is going to be absolutely incredible. A question, a question I get on that a lot, Spence, yeah. is, well, as I if, if I'm, let's say, um, old enough that I need donor eggs, right? But is my body okay for pregnancy? Is the uterus okay for pregnancy? Right. What do you tell patients? So what I tell them is that the American Society says you can do donor egg up until 54.9, but guess what? You want to be healthy. And so if you're healthy in your 30s, 40s, or you know, whenever you need to do to do donor egg, you do it. And the bottom line is is pregnancy rates are incredible if your uterus is good. So we do a saline sonogram. We make sure that the uterine cavity doesn't have polyps or fibroids and, and you have a good cavity. And you know, if you do, I think you'll do just fine. You know what a message I like to get across? Tell me, tell me if you feel the same way is that like the, the uterus doesn't really have a biological clock like right. the egg and your uterus can retain its ability to, to implant and carry and gestate and deliver. I mean, all the way up until the mid fifties, like you said, right? So it's really about the egg for some patients, but the uterus should be fine. And donor egg is a really great way to build your family if you need it. Um, and you get your pregnancy and birth experience. And you're not really, I, I, I mean, I think that because the uterus retains it, its fertility through the mid fifties, I don't, I don't, I think it's a great option. It's a great option. And you know, it's really common. And a lot of our patients are doing it. And when patients are doing it, remember people who are donors and allow you to use their eggs have been screened through FDA regulations. And if you need to get into donor egg, a donor egg pregnancy, your REI will walk you through it and really talk to you about how how that works. And there's a lot of really, really great options with regard to that. Maybe, maybe we'll do an episode on donor egg at some point in the future. What do you think? Very important. Very important area. You know, another area that is important to Josh and mine heart is egg freezing. We want to just make a couple quick comments as we kind of wrap things up. Egg freezing is really important. And you kind of commented, it's really an ability to put away those eggs now. If you're not ready to family build, you're in school, you haven't been partnered, you and your partner aren't ready to, to become pregnant now, you can always freeze the eggs or embryos for a rainy day. How do you feel? I think, I think you said it perfectly. Um, one thing that Spencer and I are super passionate about is the idea to be proactive with egg freezing. And that's for patients who, just like you said, are not in a time in their life where they want to conceive, Right. They're either not partnered or they know that their 
there are 34, but family building is important and they don't want to do it without a partner and their career is important to them. Um, there's another little part to this that's something Spencer and I do a lot of is fertility preservation for cancer patients, right? So there is life-saving chemotherapy for um, men and women with cancer, but that will kind of cook the eggs and cook the sperm. So it's really important to freeze eggs and freeze sperm before you undergo that. And that's something that Spencer and I do a lot of. And I have to tell you, it's one of the most rewarding parts of my day is when I talk to a young man or woman who's, who's, who's like the psychological double blow of, oh crap, I have cancer and oh crap, I might not be able to have a, a family. Well, the answer is no, of course, we're going to help you. This will work for you. Let's do this. And so that is specialized and thankfully a lot of people don't have to go through it, but if, but get the word out to anybody out there listening. If you know someone who's going, who has a cancer diagnosis is about to undergo treatments or is even in the middle of treatments, they should be counseled by a reproductive endocrinologist for sure. Absolutely. Because remember, like Josh said, those chemotherapeutic agents stop cells from dividing and they're stopping the cancer cells from dividing. But guess what? They can also be difficult and hard on your ovaries and your eggs and can actually ruin or, or kind of decrease your chance of pregnancy or actually make it so you can't get pregnant in the, in the future. So f- in within a couple weeks before, let's say your chemotherapy, you and I often will stimulate patients. They'll do IVF and we'll get out hopefully 15 eggs and freeze them. And sometimes that is the great hope and energy that they need to kind of get through their treatment, get in a good place, get healthy, and then down the road, we can help them become pregnant. Lastly, we have our single moms who we help get pregnant all the time. Remember, they're not infertile, but they need sperm. We can do insemination. We can do IVF. We have to support them. We love them. And we have our women couples who are also using donor sperm. And sometimes they're doing IVF and they're doing reciprocal IVF, which is really cool, Josh, huh? Well, I think it's a beautiful way to, for, for a, uh, uh, a gay couple, female-female couple to share a pregnancy, right? Because it would be one of the partner's eggs with donor sperm that the other woman could carry, you know, could, could become pregnant with, carry and deliver. And it's a beautiful way, really beautiful way of sharing that pregnancy. I, I think it's awesome. It's one of my most kind of fun conversations to have. I really like that. But, you know, I think the, the, the overarching idea here for you and me, Spence, is that we are super passionate about family building for everybody. And there's lots of different ways to come to our office, right? Like you mentioned, single mom-to-be, God forbid, a few, uh, someone who's undergoing cancer therapy, um, uh, gay couples, both female-female and male-male. Um, and I, I just think it's really important to get that message out that family building is important for everybody. And that's what we're here for. And we have something for everybody. Yep. The last thing I want to comment quickly on is that we have our men couples who will need donor sperm, excuse me, will need donor eggs and their sperm. One thing they don't need is donor sperm. Yeah, I know. And they'll do an embryo transfer into a gestational carrier. A really incredible option. We have at our center, gay parents-to-be, and we're a center of excellence in this area. And it's really important for all of our patients who are coming in and family building to be respected and helped along their journey. So, well, we did some heavy lifting. I really want to thank you, Josh, for being on today and giving us your time. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. You and I both love getting the word out. And this is just a fantastic uh, thing you're doing for everybody out there, Spencer. Like, thank you so much for getting our message out there. It's amazing. And thanks for having me on. It was super fun. You're so nice. And remember, you can follow Josh on his on Instagram at Dr. Josh Hurwitz. And remember, always, you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Spencer Richland. On Facebook, Pinterest, feel free to email me with any questions or suggestions or ideas. I would love to hear from you guys. My email is fertilitynow1 at gmail.com. Thank you.